Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm excited uh, to, to have you on um, be, because you're involved in so many uh, different topics of, uh, th that are near and dear to my heart um, as like an aspiring uh, writer. Um, and uh, it, I'm especially, uh, well, my daughter is very happy uh, that I'm interviewing you today because you are one of her teachers. <laughs> Yeah, that's so fun. I, um, when I first started writing, I thought, oh, I better keep my writing life separate from my teaching life because I don't know what the people at school are going to think about what I'm writing, but it's sort of gradually started to merge and it, I haven't gotten too much pushback yet. So I think it's working out okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, as you say that, I, I, one of the things that I've thought about as I do a podcast interview is uh, yeah, what, what would like a client think of, of like the, the things that I share, but um, I think uh, part, part of, of writing or it, it, and just putting words out into the world is like being ourselves and mm -hmm. just being authentically us. Yeah. And so um, she, she appreciates, my daughter Grace appreciates uh, you uh, as a teacher. Yeah, and, uh, I appreciate yeah. her too. We, you know, we've been doing this virtual poetry club that she's popped into the last few meetings, and we just had our last one this past Tuesday, and um, she stayed after. Um, well, there was only one other student, but he left, and she stayed. She said, "I just want to talk to you for a little bit more," and um, so she had a poem that she loved that she wanted to share with me, and and it, that was a, just a really sweet ending to our poetry club. So I'm so glad she was able to come to that. Nice. So before we, we, we dive in, into your story, could you share with listeners a little bit uh, uh, about uh, uh, your, yourself, your background? Yeah. So I am in the, the hat wearing phase of life. Uh, you know, that old picture book of the, the guy who had 40 hats on his head. Do you, do you remember that book? Is, is that a Dr. Seuss where he no. keeps taking them off? Oh, there is that Dr. Seuss book. Yes, Bartholomew Cubbins and the 500 Hats. But no, I'm thinking of, um, there's a guy who has, he's trying to sell caps for sale is the name of it. He's trying to sell caps and then he goes to sleep under a tree and the monkeys have come and stolen all of his caps. Anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing it. Yeah. I, I, I grew up in the 70s. I, I, I think I remember yeah, that one. I, we're, we're in the same general era. <laughs> so um, I just feel like I'm in that like wearing a, pile of 40 caps phase of life so I my husband is a pastor so I've got pastor's wife um whatever that means um I'm a teacher I teach um I, I try to make it part-time at Alliance Charter Academy where your daughter goes although uh they've asked me to add a couple more classes next year so I'm it keeps being less and less part and it's not quite full yet but i'm i'm really trying to you know keep my arms around that one so that i have time to do the other things that i need to do so pastor's wife teacher i have four kids they are uh 16 14 12 and 9 and right now we are in the thick of you know i feel like we've got a year off from so many things i got a year off of from driving all the activities now. driving right. everywhere yeah. yeah yeah all the sports it was all canceled so it's all back um and this 
last weekend I was with my daughter. She was running track districts in Madras. And then this weekend I was with her. She was running state in Florence. And then in the meantime, my son has been rowing and he's going to nationals in June. So they just started 5.30 AM practices. So I took him every morning to that. So, wow. and then my other two play baseball. So just, you know, like track mom, rowing mom, baseball mom. I mean, I don't, that's enough, right? I don't, <laughs> if there's anything else, I can't even remember what it is. So yeah, yeah, that's it. The um, with uh, the the pandemic, it, it, things kind of slowed down. How, and you can go into this as, as deep as you like. Um, how was um, pastor's wife role and or ministry for uh, this pandemic for for your church? Well, um, it's been tough. Um. I think that part of, in the beginning, it was good because it was a, that breath of rest for all of us. You know, nobody was expecting much. We were all like, oh my goodness, we have to stay in our houses. Um, and so like last year, uh, I think for the first time in my life, or maybe for the first time since my daughter was like two, my husband was home on Mother's Day morning, right? Like. Oh because he's always off preaching. Mother's Day is always Sunday. And, yeah. and so for the first time, and you know, my kids are old enough, they can do it by now, but um, it was it was nice to have around. And Father's Day, same thing. Oh my gosh, you're here. We can celebrate you on Father's Day. So mm. that was nice. Um, but then the stress of, uh, wait a second, like when are we going back? And what does that mean? And how do we stay connected to the people in our community? Mm. um <clears throat> political challenges of you know oh we're over here and you're over here and that never used to matter but all of a sudden it does it's it's been challenging i feel like we're starting to find a way back um we've started to meet in our space again um we're starting to discover that people are still around in our community, which is good. For a while there, it was like, oh no, we might have just like lost everyone. Who, who's even still who, out there watching who's you? Who's gonna come back? Yeah, yeah. who's watching? So who's listening? we're figuring that out. Yeah, but it's mm -hmm. been it's been challenging. Yeah. With, with the, the stresses and, and, and challenges of, of busyness and or, or even like criticism or conflict from community, um, how does that affect your writing? Does does it make it harder or does it make it easier? Um, <laughs> give, you, give you more yeah, to write about. That's a good question. And I'm also realizing that someone's practicing piano right now. Do you want me to tell them to stop or is it okay? I don't know if oh, you can even hear it. I, I don't hear them. So oh, good. Okay. Like back, background music would be fine too. Okay, fine. <laughs> I think at some point there was a box I could check. Like, do you want to filter out background noise? I think I checked it. So hopefully we're good. Yes, great. Um, Grace rehearses sometimes uh, okay. during All podcasts. Right. So, Good. Yeah. yeah, kids, kids, they do the thing. It's great. <laughs> Piano mom, a band mom. I could have added those hats to my list. <laughs> um, so, okay, now that totally distracted me, and I've lost the thread. What was your question? Can you oh, repeat it? Just how how does stress and busyness like affect your writing? Yeah. Um, well, the beginning of the pandemic, I felt like I couldn't write at all. 
I just felt like my brain had been like fritzed. <laughs> I don't know. It was like, I, I was, I don't know if I was just consumed with worry about what was going to happen. I mean, it really felt sort of apocalyptic, like the world was going to end. Um, I couldn't write. Mm. I couldn't read. I couldn't, I felt like all I could do was like doom scroll on my phone, you know, <laughs> like what is the bad news that's coming to me through Twitter? Yeah. Um, but I read an article at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I, I wish I could find it again. I don't even remember who it was a, written by a woman who had lived through war zones. Um, and she wrote about the experience of living in trauma. And she said, um, your brain is going to be there waiting for you when you get to the end of this. And she said, the first thing you need to do in this time, this critical first time is organize your space. And, and she had like all these very practical lists of like how to live through a traumatic experience, which I think we don't really have that much experience with in America, you know, like everything for many of us sort of seems like it's fine all the time. And there are these other countries where they've sort of collectively learned how to live through traumatic situations. So, hmm. um, Anyway, it was a it was a really great article, and and the other thing she did in that article was she said, um, clearly it's not going to be over in two weeks. It's going to be eighteen to twenty four months long. Like I don't know how she knew, but she said that, and that kind of lodged in my brain. Like okay, it's going to be eighteen to twenty four months long, and the first thing I need to do is organize my space. So I did. I cleaned out the basement. I reorganize like whose room was where I painted all the rooms in the house I mean I just like things that had been bugging me wow. yeah we've been living in this house for six years I've never had time right you know you sit down and you look at the wall you're like I hate that it's that color but I never have time to do anything about it so at the beginning of the pandemic I really focused on that I think there was like one day where I was able to say, wow, the house, the whole, every single thing in the whole house is totally where it's supposed to be. And of course, like it didn't last more than one day, but it got was four kids. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so um, after that, that process took a few months. And after that, it really was true that parts of my brain started to kind of come back online or reorganize in different ways. And I have been able to start writing again. Um, but yeah, it, it took a while. It was hard. Yeah. The, uh, you, you've um, written uh, for, for, for journals, for, 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 for blogs, and uh, you've, you've written a book or, or are in the process of writing a book? Actually, I've written a whole book and now I'm working on a second book even wow. though I couldn't get the first book published so it's like that's been hard that was part of the I can't write um okay so backing up so I, so I have a whole big story that I'll tell you um but a, a big crazy thing happened to me I felt like I had to write it down I spent probably five years trying to write that story down. Um, I went and got my Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. 
I finished writing that story, I was for sure that I was gonna, you know, go out and publish it. Um, I got an agent, she worked really hard. And it was right as the pandemic was starting that our efforts to sell that book were winding down. We got some great feedback from publishers. Um, some of them said, you know, one editor said, uh, I did things for this book that I've never done for any other book. Like I really went to bat for it. But um, ultimately they said, your platform's too small. So, um, so that was discouraging, but then also it felt like the whole world was falling apart. And um, so I was like, well, I, I guess I don't really have time to worry about that book too much because like the whole world is collapsing. Gotta survive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it was actually, it's been pretty much exactly a year. Um, I was talking to a friend on the phone last May and she said, Sarah, like if your first book doesn't sell, what are you going to write about next? Hmm. And I said, well, like, it's weird. I feel like I need to write about racism. And the following week, George Floyd died. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, like, I need to take it back. Like, I'm not qualified to speak into this. You know, there's, there were so many people saying so many important things. And it was like, never, never mind. Like, I can't, I can't touch this topic. Yeah. But it just stayed with me and it didn't go away. And so I just started reading and praying and kind of trying to zero in on like, well, if I was gonna write about this, what would I write? Um, and it's really been in the last couple months that it has started to coalesce for me and I've, started to see like oh this is what it is and I and I and so I have this whole second book that now I'm actually really excited about and it's interesting to me that if I had published the first one I never would have gotten here or I wouldn't have gotten here as fast because I would have still been on the track of like okay let's do the edits and let's go out and whatever you have to do to sell a book um, hmm. but because that one was set aside this whole other thing is now opened up. So, but it, but it's also, it was hard to take the step of like, well, I spent tons of money and time and, you know, pushing my family's needs aside to write this whole first book. Yeah. And it turns out no one wanted it. And now I'm going to go and do it again, even though maybe no one wants the next one either. <laughs> you know, that's, like, that's daunting. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, but we'll see what happens. Maybe they'll both get published. Maybe neither of them will be published. Who knows? Yeah. I remember Donald Miller. He, mm -hmm. he um, uh, you know, blue, blue like jazz, like blew up and was, yeah. was huge. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't his first book. Mm -hmm. um, he, I think he'd written one or two be, before yeah. then. Yeah. And that, and that first book, uh, which I enjoy, um, uh, like, I think he like republished it or uh -huh. put a new cover on it and, um, uh, it, you know, and it helped that, you know, by the author of Blue Like Jazz was on the right. bottom of, <laughs> yeah, of it. Now people will read yeah. it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, the, the theme of our podcast is, is uh, one of them is, is about courage mm -hmm. and uh, just, the, just the courage to write and, yeah. and persevere through yeah. the, um, the, the first one, not getting public. Can you tell the story a little bit yes. uh, of, yes. of the no. first one? Cause uh, you know, the, like with all the work that you did with it, it would, I, I would just love to yeah. Here, um, I don't know if I, uh, if uh, I've mentioned it to you before, I wrote a book. It's been five years ago now, mm. and uh, it's like I, I, I went into it knowing, like you know, they always tell you, like your first one is not your best one, or like you know, you make all the mistakes and all that. And so I chose to like write it about parenting mm. because I'm. I love my kids and I'm passionate about parenting, but I'm not a parenting expert. Uh -huh. So I, I wrote it with the idea that like, I'll, I'll be the rookie writer and make all the mistakes on this one because hey. that's not, because that's not the book I want to write. I want to write a book about marriage and marriage counseling and, and a book about love. Um, but, but when you write a book, it's it's like your baby like it is a child like it, it is important to you, you it's, a, yeah. it's, it's not unimportant yeah yeah so like i i, I started out with it like kind of like a little tongue-in-cheek uh, mm -hmm. like the topic uh but then you know when when you remember the stories and tell the stories about your family and your kids mm -hmm. like it's yeah it's gonna be real so yeah, yeah. so um I, I am resonating and feeling empathy, Sarah, for, uh, for that first book. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, and it was, it was just, it was a story that I had to tell because this huge thing happened to me and I just had to, I just had to tell it. So I'll, I'll tell you, I'll try to tell you in a, in a short form that doesn't take a whole book. Um, so basically the, the sort of like step into the action moment is um, 12 weeks after my fourth child was born, I started to have these obsessive thoughts. Hmm. Uh, and I had had obsessive thoughts in the past and had actually gone to a counselor, but could never actually uh, bring myself to be honest with the counselor about what the obsessive thoughts were. So that counseling never really went anywhere. Um, so this, time around um it was very upsetting to me uh, so basically i i was afraid i was gonna have an affair and i just couldn't stop thinking about this one particular other person and i knew that i was supposed to confess it to my husband and i really didn't want to i just kept praying that it would just go away and um i was actually i was doing a bible study one day and it was on, oh, uh, there's a verse in Second Corinthians that I really should have the chapter and verse number in my mind, but I don't. Um, but it's the verse that says, um, I will, it's about boasting in our weakness. Um, yeah, I can't even rattle off the exact words for you right now, but it's about boasting in our weakness. And the Bible study said, how can you do this today? <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, like I have to write something down in that space. I would really like to think of a different weakness that I could boast about. 
but I, I can't even think of anything right now. All I can think about is this thing that's been like in my head for weeks. Mm. And, and, and here's this question that says, how can you do this today? I'm like today? <laughs> okay, I'll do it today. So I confess this to my husband, it's a Thursday night. And um, I'll, uh, there's a lot to the story. I'll try to condense it a little bit, but um, basically by the following Tuesday, it was almost as if confessing that made space for other stuff to bubble up that I didn't even know was there. Yeah. So four days later, Tuesday morning, um, all of a sudden I'm changing my baby, you know, he's lying there on the changing table and I look at him and these words just plow into my brain, totally unexpected, never thought them before. So surprising. I actually like stumbled backwards and fell on the bed. And the words were, something happened to me. Something happened to me when I was a baby. I was sexually abused by then this name. I had ne that had never occurred to me before that I had been sexually abused. Like what, where, where did that come from? So that was Tuesday morning and it kind of spun me into this like, oh my gosh, I gotta figure this out. Trying to, you know, rethink my entire life. By Thursday night, so one week after I first confessed these thoughts to my husband, I had to be taken to the psych ward and I was hospitalized. So like majorly dramatic, like total life altering. Totally disrupted. Totally disrupted. Totally disrupted my life. I ended up being diagnosed with um, postpartum psychosis. Uh, and then they converted it to bipolar disorder. And then it took a few years to add on the diagnosis of uh, OCD. I think the obsessive thoughts were part of that. Yeah. So, so all of that, I stay, I mean, I'm in the hospital for four days and then I basically, they just, you know, give me enough medication to sort of like squash all that stuff. Mm. And then- when, um, when, And for you, Sarah, like the medication? Did it just turn down the volume and the intensity of it, or did it help with the actual like intrusive thoughts? Uh, it just turned everything down. Just everything just kind of went away. And I think that that medication was, it was the wrong medication. It was too much. Within a couple months, hmm. my husband was like, what has happened here? Like, I can't, I mean, I wasn't really talking. Mm. Um, it was sort of becoming kind of catatonic. Um, wow. so, so we tried different medication and it was better, but the so that whole year it was like, first there was all this obsessive thought stuff, then this explosive revelation, then I was hospitalized. Then I was turned into a zombie. Then I started to come out of it. And then I had to ask the questions, okay, was I really abused? What do I do with that relationship now? Someone who's still in my life. And um, what is this mental illness stuff? Like I've never, no one's ever told me I had a mental illness before. What do I do with that? Yeah. You're wrestling, you're wrestling with all that. And I'm doing the math. So yeah. 
nine years ago. So you had a, a around seven year old, five year old, three year old, and a baby. Yeah, and actually, I mean, it was in the fall. They had, none of them had turned yet, so they were six, four, and two. Oh, and wow. Yeah. 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 It was. I mean, that's enough, right? Like anybody could go to the psych ward just after, for having a six, four, two, and newborn, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, so it, it was. It was a lot. Yeah. What was yeah. that like for your your church community and your husband? Um, so he was, we were living in a different city. He was an associate pastor at the time. Um, and there were people who really came around. I mean, majorly stepped into our lives and said, you know, we are going to love you through this. We are going to help you through this. Hmm. And then there are people who didn't. And I think, I think a lot of times mental illness is scary. I think people don't, know what they're supposed to say or do and so they kind of like eh, like i you know i better kind of put you at arm's length because i uh, i'm scared um but the church i mean they gave jeremy a paid month off when i was first hospitalized they helped pay for my medications that now they're generic they're five bucks whenever i go in to refill but that before they went generic it was like a hundred dollars a month and which wow. seemed like a lot more at the time you know like oh, back yeah. then yeah. yeah when we were you know i was staying home and he was an associate pastor salary it was like what what <laughs> how we can't do that mm. um so mm. yeah so they they were supportive many of them were supportive some were not that's the way it goes mm. yeah so a, a, a year of, of at least the, the start of trying to figure out the right medication right. and or, or even yeah. the right diagnosis yeah. and treatment All plan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was very resistant when I first, you know, I'd never even seen a psychiatrist before I was in the hospital. And then I came out of the hospital. I remember like walking down the hall to my first psychiatrist appointment. I was like, like what kind of people go into doors that say psychiatrist on the front, you know, like that mm. sounds, you know, like who have I become? I just mm. didn't even had no context for it. Um, and I remember in my, that very first psychiatrist appointment, she was kind of trying to point me in the direction of like, well, you know, two thirds of women who have postpartum psychosis have bipolar disorder. And so she was kind of trying to point me to like, Hey, is this a thing in your life? And, mm. and I was very resistant to that. No, it was like, no, I, I, there's nothing wrong with me. I just had this revelation. I've, you know, been under a lot of stress, whatever. Like, I'm never going to have this revelation again. This is never going to happen to me again. I, I don't have a problem. Right. Um, and she said, okay, fine. Well, most uh, manic episodes that are unmedicated last eight months. So if you want to try to go off the medication after eight months, that's fine. So I was very determined, like, okay, I'm going to be a good patient for eight months, and then I'm going to go off this medication. I'm never going to have this problem again, because, you know, I was 33. I didn't have any chronic health problems at that time at all. It was just so foreign to me that, like, something could be wrong with you that can't be fixed. Like, no, that's not, that's not how I'm going to live my life. So um, after eight months, I, you know, was counting off. And I came to her, I mean, we I saw her all along, but after eight months, I 
said, all right, it's been eight months. Can I go off the medication? She said, sure, you can try it. Um, and maybe because I started to taper off the medication, somehow it also seemed like a good idea at the time to confront my abuser. Um, and so I did that. And after that conversation, um, I, uh, sorry, they're yelling. <laughs> they don't remember things like be quiet for an hour. That's hard for them to remember. Um, uh, so after that conversation, um, I started to become manic again and I started to feel that like panicky anxiety feeling kind of rising up in me again. And, um, thankfully, you know, this time around my husband recognized what was going on. He got me into my counselor. It was her day off. Bless her. She came in to meet me on her day off. And she said, do you need to go back to the hospital? And I remember like kind of mad, like you can put me back in the hospital if you want to put me back in the hospital. <laughs> mm. I'm not, I don't usually like, you know, get mad at people. Um, and then I kind of start crying. No, I don't want to go back to the hospital. So she said, all right, well, you know, let's talk to your psychiatrist. Let's up your dose and let's see if we can keep you home. And I was able to up my dose and stay home. Um, but that experience of recognizing that feeling that was the same, some parts of it were the same as what had happened to me eight months before. I, so I went back to my psychiatrist at that time and I said, all right, I really do have bipolar disorder, don't I? She said, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think that it had ever been a question for her. I mean, who knows what she thought, but I, I came around to it at that time. So I've stayed on my medication ever since. And um, I haven't had that sort of emergent, urgent episode um, since then, but I sort of liken it like having bipolar while being medicated feels a little bit like, so when, oh, sorry, the dog, there's so many noises in my house. <laughs> You've got a full um, house. Oh my gosh. So, um, so I, it sort of feels like when you're in the midst of a manic episode, unmedicated, it's like being a boat in a hurricane and you might just get picked up and thrown into the next county. Um, when, when you have bipolar and you are medicated, it's sort of like being a boat in a harbor that's tied you know, to a dock. Like the water level is still gonna go up and down, but you're not gonna get- Get swept away with it. Ups and downs. Away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I do sometimes notice a little bit of like, oh, I'm a little, you know, am I happy or am I getting a little hypomanic? Oh, I'm a little slow. I'm maybe, you know, tending to be a little bit depressed, but um, I, I have a good medication regimen. I have two different medications that I take and I'm thankful for them because they keep me, keep me tied to the dock. So, yeah. Yeah. So your, your first book was, is about. It's that story. Going through that. Yeah. 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 And then yeah. in the middle of writing that story, I found out that my great, 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 great grandmother wrote 
a book in 1796 that's considered by historians to be the first autobiographical account of sexual abuse ever written in America. And so I started reading her book and kind of trying to figure out what happened to the child who was abused. And so the book became sort of a braid between my story and that story. And one publisher who rejected it said, it's too ambitious. <laughs> I thought it was cool. It sounds amazing. It's ama I think it's amazing. It, I think it's an amazing story. So um, let me see if I can find of this brick. So I actually went back to Vermont and New Hampshire with my mom and we found the place where the house was that they lived in, these, this family where this abuse occurred in 1796. And I plucked this brick out of the hole in the ground and she actually talks in the book about how her husband would sit in front of the fireplace and look at the at the fire and kind of like plot his next move and this is the fireplace that he was looking at so yeah i mean i think it's a cool story we'll see if anybody ever wants to publish it and then you can read it yeah yeah the um right how uh the, the process of writing mm -hmm. um, the and and you're still being treated so it's not just you're writing about something that you went through but it's you're writing as so someone going through mm -hmm. um, living is it bipolar how uh, how has it um, affected your like, like the management of of your emotions or or just the uh, rhythms i mean i think that by the time i started trying to write the book i had already done so much therapy work i mean in that first year especially i had a counselor i had a psychiatrist i had a stephen minister I had so many friends were coming around me. I had, I mean, God sent me so many people who prayed with me and spoke into my life. And I, I, I did a ton of healing work before I started to put the story down on paper. Um, so I don't feel like, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, writing is therapeutic. I mean, yes, but also by the time I started writing, it was clear I was writing it for an audience, not just for my own, like vomited out onto the page. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Like there's a place for that. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, I, you do have to go back and relive things, right? If you're gonna mm. write it effectively, you do have to sort of like, I mean, I sort of close my eyes and, and imagine what that, scene was in order to be able to place myself there so I can write it again. Yeah. It was, I mean, there were some hard moments, but by and large, I felt like I had rehearsed the story so many times that it wasn't, it wasn't like I was trying to write it for the very first time. Or, yeah. 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 It, so for you, it was like, 
therapeutic and and for an audience it wasn't necessarily the therapy um, right yeah 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 uh, but yeah finding the end is hard right like it's hard mm. to find the end of a memoir because you're like well I could write about what happened yesterday, or maybe something will happen tomorrow that will be the end of that book. You know, so yeah, that's, um, that's, Anne, Anne, yeah that's why Anne Lamont keeps writing little books like every right. few years. <laughs> Here's another installment of my life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The uh, for, for part of the 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 counseling that I do with folks is looking at the story of their life mm -hmm. and how their experiences have shaped their view of themselves, um, their, their view of the world. Uh, how, how has what you've gone through, like, you, you know, we started talking about hats, um, but what have you learned about like identity? Oh, that's such yeah. a great question. Um, and I've learned so much. I mean, it's totally changed the way I am in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the, the major thing that's just totally flipped for me is that until I had all those experiences, I was constantly trying to please people. I was trying to be perfect. I was trying to please my parents. I was trying to please my teachers. I was trying to please God. I was trying to do it all right and get it right and do everything. And then I had this experience where I was completely unable to do any of that. Right. I mean, I was a patient in a psych ward. I couldn't even trust whether my own thoughts were correct. I, I was not viewed by anyone as anything that I'd spent my whole life trying to project. Mm. And discovering God's grace in that place and discovering that I was beloved in that place was so, I mean, it, it totally changed my life. And I felt so free after that. Was like oh my gosh like I am loved no matter what <laughs> and it just yeah it was very it was very foundational um yeah. so yeah it was a huge and it took some time to you know put all those pieces together but um yeah that was that was it yeah that um that that prompt the the second Corinthians mm -hmm. uh, verse about your weakness that yeah. is like just extreme weakness weakness and helplessness yeah and just, yeah uh, just needing 
the health of others. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of the theme of my life now. It's like, how, how can I show you <laughs> how weak and unable I am <laughs> to pull it all together? Like even in this podcast, you know, it's like, oh, they're playing piano and they're yelling and they're barking. It's like, this is my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's good. God is, God is here. It, remind, it reminds me of the uh, Greatest Showman. Did you, do you guys watch that musical? The, I the have Greatest seen Showman. that. Yeah. 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 Like there, there's a song like "This Is Me" mm. <laughs> in there. Yeah. The uh, so so tell 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 me and, and listeners a little bit uh, uh, about your writing. Like, wh what do you like to write? Um, uh, b besides uh, uh, these book projects. Um, you know, I, I am in the sort of, uh, I don't know if it's blessed or just obscure position of not needing to rely on the income I make from writing <laughs> because it's good because I hardly make any. Um, I, I have a friend who's a freelance writer and and it's a struggle because she needs to be paid to write. Um, mm. And I, uh, I still get to write whatever I want. And um, I can feel like I can hardly ever find a place to publish it and they hardly ever pay me. So that's great because I can still write whatever I want. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, right now, I really am focusing on this second book, um, but I still, I do, I mean, I sort of, I guess I just write what um, comes to me and then sometimes it, sometimes it comes, like I have a, an essay that's going to be published next month and I wrote it last fall. Um, my mom invited me to go on a silent retreat with her and the afternoon of the second day, I just had all these thoughts and I sat there and wrote them down and pretty much there's not a lot of change between what I scribbled in my journal that afternoon and what's going to come out in this journal next month. Um, and then there's other things that, I mean, I've got this piece that I've been, I love it, but it's driving me crazy. And I've been wrangling it for years. <laughs> I can't figure out like, what is it trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if it'll ever get into shape. So, mm -hmm. so, so there are things that, that, that you'll wrestle with for years. It's not a thing where you have an idea on Monday and then you're done like on Friday. Like Sometimes it is. Oh, okay. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, do, do you have any uh, advice for, for listeners who, who are, are writers that are wanting to, to write more or, or find their voice as writers? Yeah. Um, 
So my best writing advice is don't be afraid to start over. And this, I think for my students too, like, you know, they write a first draft and then they think like, okay, this is it, the thing that I've written. And all I can do is sort of like rearrange these words a little bit. And sometimes the very best thing to do is take that thing crinkle it up, throw it away, and start again on the exact same piece, whatever it is, but, but start fresh. Because all that work you did is still there in your mind, and if you start again, your mind might have a new way of putting it out there that just works better, that you couldn't see when you were so attached to whatever the words were that you wrote down the first time. All right. It's tough, but that's my. I point. I am like gut punching it here. Um, <laughs> Sorry. My my ninety six thousand words. Oh um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but don't be yeah. afraid to start over. So my so my memoir, the first book that I wrote, um, I wrote a draft of it before I started my master's degree. I did the uh, MFA program through Seattle Pacific University, which I highly recommend. Um, and so I had this whole draft and I came into the program thinking like, okay, they're gonna help me fix it and get it ready to go. And it's gonna be great. And um, my first year mentor, so it's a two year program. You get one mentor for the first year and one mentor for the second year. And my first year mentor worked with me um, on you know a lot of the stuff that I had coming into it and she was very helpful and then my second year mentor said Sarah you need to start over and I said oh, okay I will so I did and I wrote this whole new draft I totally I mean I kept some pieces you know it wasn't like I totally threw away everything but I basically started over I kept some pieces, I rearranged it. I, I had this whole idea, this new structure, like, oh, this is gonna be great. And then after I graduated the program, um, I hired her to continue working with me as an editor. And so I, about six months after I graduated, I sent her this whole new draft. She'd already told me to start over once. Sent her this whole new draft. And I went out to see her, she lives in North Carolina. Um, and I spent some time with her and we, we worked on the, well, bef before we got to the working on part, um, very first time I sat down with her, I hadn't heard from her yet. I'd sent her this draft, she'd read it. She hadn't told me what she thought of it. So we sat down and she said, well, do you want me to say something nice or do you want me to be honest? <laughs> I was just like, honest. <laughs> she said, you gotta start over again. It's not working. And that like ruthless honesty, hardly anybody will say, will do that for you, right? Like everybody wants you to feel good about what you're doing. So everybody will read your stuff and say like, this is great. And sometimes they're right, but sometimes you just need somebody to say like, honestly, it's gonna be better if you try again. So I started writing it a third time. I had already written two whole drafts of a book and I'm staying in her house. She's off doing her, you know, stuff. She teaches 
And so I'm just like sitting there in her house and it's quiet, which is obviously a marvel for me. And um, she would like come back at night and read what I'd written. And the very first day that I did that, you know, I like, I don't know how many words I wrote, gave it to her, she read it. She comes back in the room, she goes, Sarah, this is the best writing I've ever seen from you. <laughs> so I was like, I finally wrote something and not that, you know, it's all about what that one person thinks, but, but I just, I needed, especially because it was such personal material, I just needed to get it out. And then I needed to get it out again. And then I had enough distance from it. Okay. Now I can write it in a way that is going to work for the reader. And of course it still hasn't been published. So maybe the next editor will come along and say, no, actually, you know, whatever, but I don't know. As you described that, Sarah, that's, that's so, that, that, that's the, a, a little bit of the overlap between counseling therapy and, and writing. Mm -hmm. As a, some of my favorite people are writers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my kindred spirits, like either mm -hmm. therapists or writers. Mm -hmm. um, because we, 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 we use that, the, the material of experiences. Yeah. And the, the structures of story. And uh, for, for a lot of folks, uh, like editing, like writing, well, first telling the story, like you described in, in two drafts, like just the first one is just really kind of messy and yeah. it's just raw. Yeah. Um, and then the, the retelling of it refines, it kind of, it, it's not that the story changes, but the way we tell it changes, it's refined and, and it's actually like redemptive that, like like the the pain and and what you learn from telling the story well certainly the shame mm -hmm. like decreases mm -hmm. um and the being yeah. uh just being alone in it mm -hmm. um decreases with the telling of it but um but but it becomes something that can that we can share with other people yeah yeah and just um uh, i hope you keep going um, yeah well, thank you. I, I do. I think that the way we tell our stories is so powerful. And that's an interesting connection between writing and, and yeah, the work of sitting in a counseling office. And how do I tell my story? How do I see myself? Like your question about identity, who am I? How do I describe that? And um, it's just, it's uh, oh, now they're calling for me. Okay, my husband's running interference now. It's all good. <laughs> um yeah i just mom think, mom's doing writing stuff mom's doing something her space. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. writer life yeah. yeah yeah as you were talking i was thinking about um just like my favorite understanding of what the bible is is that it's a story you know i mean it's a it's a set of rules and it's a love letter and it's so many things, but it's, a, it's the story of God's redemptive work in the world. And the fact that we get to be part of that story that God is telling with the arc of the universe is just pretty fabulous. Yeah. Uh, who, who do you think uh, you're becoming the, these days, like in this chapter? 
Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I would like to think that I am becoming someone who can speak the truth without fear. Um, I would like to think that I'm becoming someone who stays rooted in my own belovedness and can see the belovedness of others. Um, I really hope, you know, I mean, I still don't feel like I, you know, very many people know who I am or whatever, but um, even just going from like having 400 followers on Twitter to having 2000 followers on Twitter, it's like, ooh, like, I, I don't wanna ever become a person who, like you were saying at the beginning, was this before or after we hit record? Mm -hmm. uh, that sense of being authentic wherever you are in any sphere. Um, I hope that, I hope that more people read my writing, but I also hope that I can stay grounded and authentic and vulnerable, no matter how many people that is. And maybe it'll still only be a few people and that's okay too. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Twitter. I was, I was gonna mention it, um, intro or, or post. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Twitter is a dumpster fire, but if you need some positive, uh, uh, refuge from the, the mess, uh, follow Sarah on Twitter. <laughs> like, I really appreciate you, uh, on, on Twitter, Sarah, because like, you're one of the most like supportive people, uh, mm. on there. Mm. And, um, and, and one thing I like is that when you ask questions on there, like you're not just uh like doing it for for show or uh or, or just like but but it's like you actually engage mm -hmm. like you actually listen to the answers and yeah. respond to the answers of the questions that you ask so i yeah. really appreciate um uh like you're one of the positive uh spot the bright spot thank you Twitter. I, I appreciate that and it's a fine balance and you know sometimes i might have an off day on twitter but um yeah i, I i'm trying to see it i mean i went on there because they told me to right it's like writers have to have a platform you have to have this many followers or we're not going to publish your book but like what a terrible way to see people as a means to an end you know mm -hmm. like if I need this many followers before, I mean, I, I, like, God forgive me when I see it that way. I, these are real people. And so I'm trying to just enjoy getting to know people. And I do, I like to, I like to respond when they give me, I like to ask questions that elicit something positive about what it is to be human. And then I, I appreciate it when people give me answers. So I try to have time to to respond. Yeah, it's it, it's fun. The and uh, I I think one of the things uh, that I like about the questions that you ask on Twitter is it 
it it's helped has helped me just consider like what are we going through <laughs> yeah you no know, this last year oh it's um, been tough yeah. yeah yeah so uh as we wind down our time for today are there any last thoughts you have on um for for listeners um well, what, the only thing that's coming to me is you haven't asked me about um, my book about racism. And so I, oh. I want to talk about it just a little tiny bit. Yes. Um, so I, I'm writing about one specific story um, in 1851 in Oregon City, which, you know, is right around the corner from me. It's where, um, where the school is that your daughter goes and I teach. Um, in 1851, there was a man named Jacob Vanderpool, and he operated a hotel in Oregon City, and he was Black, and um, a, a rival hotel owner pressed charges because Oregon had these exclusion laws um, that said that Black people weren't allowed to live there, here. And he was convicted of being Black, and they made him leave. And he was the only person in the history of the United States ever to be convicted solely of the crime of being black. And so, wow. yeah, so that like, knowing that that happened here in my backyard, it just, it just kept going around and around. It was like, oh my gosh, like I, I, I have to wrestle with this somehow. Um, and as a white person, you know, what, what is, my response supposed to be um and i started looking deeper into this story and i started noticing so there's not a lot about jacob vanderpool in the historical record i mean he sort of like shows up he this happens to him he disappears we don't know where he was before that we don't know what happened to him after that mm. but there are these um these white men who uh, participated in this story and they're all over the historical record because there are these Oregon pioneers right and so like we know a lot about these guys because they built Oregon um, and so the book my working title for it is the place they made I'm interested in looking at like who are these people who did this thing and how is that the place they made, how is this place still that place? You know, what's the legacy? Um, and what do I do as a white person to repent of the racism that's in me, whether I want it to be there or not, you know, because I live in this society? And what do I do about this past stuff that you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of white people, maybe even especially white Christians who say, you know, everybody stands individually before God and you don't have to, you know, you don't repent for something somebody else did, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know that that's biblical. And now I'm getting off into the weeds of theology, but I, I see in the Bible people repenting for their ancestors' sins. So, so that's, those are the questions I'm asking and I'm trying to figure it out. And that's a whole other topic. I'm just going to drop that on you at the very end. And then there you go. Make of it what you will. Well, hopefully, uh, have you back on to, to talk yeah. a little bit more about yeah. it. But we'll, we'll, the, quite the contrast memoir yeah. 
and then just like kind of investigative. Um, yeah. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I, I'm getting into it, but you know, once again, I, I'm still writing stuff that I just want to write it, and I don't know if anybody wants to read it. So we'll see. Check back in. We'll see what happens. Yes. Yeah. Well, the so so if if listeners want to read what what you have written uh how how can they find you so i have a website www.sarahlsanderson.com i try to keep it updated with my list of everything and that's probably the most succinct place to find it i mean i do put it on twitter and instagram and facebook but you know that all gets buried in other stuff in between so um yeah, I try to keep the clips up there on Facebook, or uh, sorry, on my website. Sometimes they go dead, the places disappear, and then I try to take them down or not. You know, it's a weird <laughs> world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll 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 put your your your, your website uh, in, in the show notes. Uh, Sounds good. Uh, on on YouTube and then also uh, on the podcast on on Spotify. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Sarah. You so yeah, this has been a joy. I enjoy talking to you and um, gosh, I, I feel like your counseling clients are lucky to have you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, hope you have a great summer. Thank you. You yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you guys have some fun plans and get to enjoy a little time off for your family members. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll see you around uh, okay. and, and on Twitter. Good. Welcome to the Courage Coaching and Counseling Podcast with Savon Penn, Licensed Professional Counselor here in Portland, Oregon. Wherever you're at in life, this podcast will inspire and encourage you to be more brave in life and take the next best step between where you are and where you want to be. My guest for episode 32 of the podcast is Sarah Sanderson. Sarah is a writer and a teacher. She's also a pastor's wife. In this episode, we talk about her writing and her efforts to build her platform as an author. We also talk about parenting and life during pandemic. Uh, We spend most of the episode talking about her journey with mental health. And I just really admire Sarah's courage in sharing her story. I hope it encourages you. Wasn't that a fun conversation with Sarah? In church today, our pastor Alex, he talked about courage and fear. And one quote I wanted to share uh, is from his message was that courage is the byproduct when you're loved, when you know you're loved. And this podcast is about courage. Um, I think one of the things that mental health, mental, well, struggles with mental health, mental illness does is it can make you question how loved you are when, when you go through pain. 
when you struggle and or even when you make mistakes and have regrets and uh that that message from alex was really encouraging i'll, I'll put the the sermon in the show notes uh if you are maybe needing some more uh encouragement uh these days uh i know it definitely blessed me and my family uh i hope if you're listening i hope you know that you are loved and whatever you're you're going through i hope uh that you'll be brave and that you'll have people around you encouraging you supporting you with uh, whatever whatever growth or healing or changes uh you're you're wanting to make thanks as always for listening uh, to the podcast uh, uh, welcome your feedback or questions uh, you can uh, post questions on the courage coaching and counseling podcast uh, facebook page um, and i don't have a separate instagram uh, for the podcast but i am on instagram at savon pen counseling take care have a great week <laughs>